Hey everyone, it's Rago. I'm back with Ramdas here and now. Another episode actually took place right up the road from where I am now in Ojai, California. This talk is from Santa Barbara in 1989, The Emptiness of Compassion. Uh, but before we get into it, I do want to mention uh, we have this beautiful guest podcast that we have on Be Here Now Network. Uh, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And this one's from Nina Rao, and many of you know her. She is just a wonderful, wonderful kirtan artist. And uh, she has uh, a concert that she's doing online, and you'll see it in the show notes here on May 30th, which is coming up real soon. Uh, and it's sacred music for sacred force, and this is part of the work that she's been doing uh, around tigers, actually, and uh, conservation, and uh, hopefully keeping them from extinction, right? So check that out. Nina Rao, um, many of you know her. I know that. Uh, also, uh, coming up on June 5th, we have our first Love Server member, LSR Movie Night, and we're going to show this... Uh, wonderful uh, uh, interview that was done by Jeffrey Mishlove uh, with Ramdas many years ago that is so darn relevant to what's going on now with this pandemic and all of the emotions and the uncertainty and everything else that we're going through. And that, again, it should be around, I think it's going to be 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and Jeffrey and I are going to chat uh, uh, during the event, the showing of the film, June 5th, 7.30, Eastern Standard, Standard Time. And um, I can't tell you, I think there's so much great material that will help all of us, you know, navigate through uh, what we're going through. So on to uh, this talk, which was called The Emptiness of Compassion and Ramdas at some point in in the end of the 80s went to New York and really uh, did a lot of work uh, with uh, different uh, parts of the population in the city from homeless and so on, feeding people and um, going from one end of the city to the other. The polarization there, of course, is extraordinary from the very wealthy to the very uh, disadvantaged. And... Um, so he talks about how, you know, that suffering, by the way, is going on uh, at all levels. And uh, it's it, to the rich and the poor and looking at that suffering and how do we consume that suffering into, our, into oneself? How do we be present and quiet to our, and allow our heart to continue to break uh, is the big question. It's a big question of our times right now, is it not? And I love what Ramdas always talks about, you know, the loving rock, being at bedside uh, with people who are dying and becoming a loving rock. And, you know, that allows us to activate equanimity. And that is so, so, so important uh, if we are to be present for, look at these times, you know. I mean, there isn't anyone amongst us that is not, um, uh, uh, you know, been with people who know, or you absolutely know somebody that has COVID and has gone through the, the horror that, uh, you know, it sometimes presents for people or, uh, 
just the kind of economic suffering, the kind of uncertainty and worry about the future and so on. Um, so how do we be present in a way that we are not going to resonate fear is what a lot of what this talk from Ram Dass is about. And, and um, one of the points was around, uh, that he brings up is around faith. Okay, that's a, that's a difficult point. Because faith is, as he says, so it's not about um, belief. Faith is not belief. Faith is something so deep down inside us. It's 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 accessed through intuitive process. It is not accessed through the mind, uh, and uh, and when it's not strong, you you know, as he says, it, it, you become afraid of the world, of getting seduced into attachment about how it's all going to come out. How is this whole pandemic thing going to come out? Well, are we going to come out the other end of this? And that is, you know, uh, a stance that comes out of fear. And we go back to being in the moment and being present with ourselves, with our hearts that reach out naturally to the suffering around us. How do we become present? How do we activate um, ourselves to the point where we're not living in fear? We're not living in anxiety. And it's very difficult I mean, and it's not like that happens, okay, we're going to get to that place where we're, you know, as Ram Dass called it, the loving rock, uh, which I just mentioned. It, it's, not, it's not permanent until we are bodhisattvas, until we have gone beyond uh, in, 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 and um, are nothing but service to our fellow humans. We become that, and that takes... Bunch of lifetimes, thousands, whatever, who knows? I have no idea. But the fact that we practice um, moving in that direction is what matters. It's what counts, you know? Because just uh, being involved in, uh, uh, in this kind of attachment to thinking we know what, how this is going to occur or wanting it to be a certain way and all of that is fear reactive and it doesn't help ourselves and it doesn't help anybody else. You know, Ram Dass talks about the human heart and the quality of the heart that embraces absolutely ev everything. It's boundless and it's natural. It's a natural thing for us as soon as we see or hear, and we're seeing and hearing day to day the worst awful stuff, people dying and not having their family around them. I mean, it's just... Uh, it is heartbreaking, and um, I there there's uh, just in terms of this whole thing around uh, compassion and emptiness, and you know emptiness is very is a Buddhist concept that's very difficult. Um, people think you know it's not um, nihilistic. It is not about nothingness. It, in fact. Uh, Bob Thurman calls it uh, emptiness is the womb of bliss. And my own take on it in a small, more relative way is that, uh, you know, you get to the point where you realize that all of this self-referential stuff that we do day to day, moment to moment, you know, uh, just the focus on mini me, that no longer, that centeredness around that uh, who we think we are dissipates. And the dissipation of that 
is the moving into emptiness. And here's a, um, and that's just one small little aspect of, of the profundity of emptiness, which, uh, you know, uh, my favorite Tibetan Lama, one of them, I got a few, but you know this if you've been listening to my mind-rolling podcasts on the network, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who, who left us in the early 80s. He talks about compassion is the effortless radiance of emptiness, free of concepts, beyond description. That is how a Buddha's activity for beings can be limitless. If you understand this, you will know that even when a cool breeze blows upon a sick person burning with fever, that itself is the blessings and compassion of the Buddhas. And that's from the effortless radiance of emptiness. Uh, something to contemplate for sure, right? Uh, what else is in this talk? Um, well, of course, there's uh, Ramdas's boy, his super emphasis on uh, how we see each other. You know, we see each other. I'm in a role. I see you in a role. So how do we see behind our own veils? And we have to see before behind our own veils, or else how can we see behind the veil of another human? And this is uh, this goes a long way. I mean, compassion can't happen until that happens, uh, because otherwise you're just stuck in who you think you are as a role player, as a identity, and so on. Um, as Trungpa Rinpoche said, enlightenment is the ego's ultimate disappointment. Right? <laughs> uh, well, this right towards the end of the talk, and uh, I can't help it about quoting some of this stuff, okay? Everybody out there is like, hey, will you, I, I just want to hear Ramdas talk about, well, I think that pointing it out is a good thing and repetition is even better and here's what he said the art is to embrace the suffering without judgment with appreciation in the perfection of the laws of the universe which include your own heartbreaking okay that's a fantastic quote i'm going to say it again the art is to embrace the suffering without judgment, with appreciation in the perfection of the laws of the universe, which includes your own heart breaking. We are human, and we have to allow for our humanness to be there alongside of our striving to become kinder, more compassionate, more loving beings. So... This is uh, a beautiful talk and, and so apropos for our times. Santa Barbara, 1989, April, The Emptiness of Compassion. This is Ramdas Here and Now. And please join us at BeHereNowNetwork.com. We have a, a, a plethora of fantastic um, podcasters, teachers, thought leaders, and we have some exciting, we have Robert Svoboda who just came aboard. Robert is just fantastic, uh, doctor of Ayurvedic medicine and 
he had a teacher, uh, an Agora teacher, and those books, the Agora books that he wrote are just phenomenal. So I, I highly suggest those. And you will be informed of the more to come uh, from new podcasters on the Be Here Now Network. We shall see you next week. Namaste. I spent the fall in New York City uh, three months in New York City, Manhattan, um, working with homeless and housing, the homelessness issue and housing issue, low-cost housing. And um, it was a very rich experience for me. In fact, I was in ecstasy most of the time I was in New York. Just riding the subways and walking the streets and late at night and just enjoying the spirit and the heterogeneity and the aliveness of that city. And the humanity and the compassion of that place. It's incredible. There's no reason why New York City should work at all. <laughs> But it does. I mean, it's far out. Everybody just holds on tighter. And the experience stretched me a lot because um, the, one of the reasons I was going to do that was because of my own middle classness. And. Uh, you know, it's very easy to talk this talk to people who are fellow people out of the middle class for the most part, who have the leisure and the security and the health and the stability for us to go this trip together. But what about everybody else? Not just the ones who would be in this room if they could, but the ones who wouldn't be in this room if they could. So I was uh, riding the vans for the helping, visiting with the mentally disturbed people who were street people, and I was living in shelters, and I was teaching a class in which there were 200 students, including some homeless people. And everybody had to do some service for the course. They either had to go out and work in a shelter or a soup kitchen, or they had to get into advocacy, political action, helping us organize a huge march we had across 57th Street of 10,000 people to protest uh, Mayor Koch's housing policies, which is far out to end up in a political way when you go to feed the poor. And then you look and you see that why they're poor is a symptom, and what the sickness is is the polarization in the culture and the fact that the rich get more and the poor get less, and there's no more middle class. I mean, it keeps getting stretched. And everybody wants to climb aboard the, the bandwagon that's going up. Because those are the two choices. I mean, I was dealing in New York with people who, you know, her husband got sick and so he couldn't get his salary, so he couldn't pay the rent, so they get evicted and they can't afford anything else in New York City, so now they're homeless. You know, or. Their place caught on fire from the downstairs apartment and now they're homeless. I mean, you know, you, you can build these middle class things if they're homeless because 
you know, like the Republicans do, because they deserve it, you know. If they were. That's, that's bad mouthing the Republicans. I mean, they're as good a human beings as the Democrats. <laughs> as Jim Wright is showing us. Isn't it interesting about ethics in this culture? It's such a wonderful Kali Yuga. Boy, it's so beautiful. Whew. They say in the Kali Yuga, the bull of truth, Shiva's bull, is only riding on one leg at that point. There's only one leg of truth left on the ground. All the rest of it is hypocrisy and lying. Standing in the park with the homeless, uh, they were protesting, living in the park, and the police kept coming in and destroying all their bedding. And, and we, you know, we just met as these fellow human beings, all of whom were doing what we could do. And they, at this moment, were being homeless, and they were unionizing. It's hard to unionize a group of homeless people. They don't have much motivation, not much get up and go. So you've got nothing to lose. And then at the same time, I was dealing in New York City with very rich people and very famous people. So I go from the park down in Mayor's Park downtown. I get on the subway. Night in the subway is supposed to be scary in New York, but to me it's just, uh, it's great. It's like a Genet novel or something. Then I go up to these apartments where there'd be all these parties with all these people who were somebody or other. And I kind of saw suffering everywhere I looked. I didn't even see that anybody had a corner on it. And I saw that if I had anything to offer these people, I had to consume the suffering into myself. Not take it away from them, but allow it to be. I had to find a place in myself that was so present, quiet, that whatever came towards me, sure, it would make my heart, it would wrench and pull and sometimes violent pain of my heart. But at the same time, you would just let your heart keep breaking, it doing its thing and keep cultivating that equanimity that says, yes, also, and that too. Hmm. And I was working with the AIDS community, as I've been doing for some years in New York, and going to the healing circles and things like that. And 
holding people as they were getting sicker and sicker in their early 30s, confused with confusion, the confusion of the culture, the confusion of incarnation, the confusion of dealing with pain and, uh, and opportunistic disease. Confusion of dealing with the ambivalence of the people around them who were also human. And it's such an interesting moment. What I've noticed is that when my faith isn't strong, and I don't mean faith like belief, like something I hold on to, it means something I am. When my faith isn't strong, I am afraid of the world. I'm afraid of the bomb or, or getting seduced into caring, getting seduced into attachment to how it comes out. And I'm trying to hold on to my spiritual edge. But you can see how that's completely trapped. That's a whole stance arising out of fear. And I recognize that in myself. And then there are moments where the faith is so that I feel my heart just open and start to break and break and break again, just in the presence of just what is. Ah, uh, so. Hmm. And New York was such an exercise in that. So one guy in our class, I just thought about it, he, he was a young guy in his 20s, mid-20s, and he said he had just uh, lost his job as a, a computer something or other. And he had been a few weeks without work, and he had some money in the bank, so he was not too worried about it. And he took the class because he didn't want to, because he was afraid I'd ask them to do something. And I did, and he didn't want to do it, but he did it. And then he said, I, I woke up one morning and I really wanted to give away food. So he said, I went to the bank and I drew out $1,000. And then I went to a delicatessen and I bought mustard, I bought bread, I bought cheese. I think he bought salami. And he said, and I went home and all night long I made sandwiches. Then I put them all in the back of my Volkswagen and I went looking for homeless people and I couldn't find them. <laughs> and then I found some and I started giving away the sandwiches and asking them if they'd find people to give the sandwiches to. And then a policeman arrested me for creating a disorder. said it was quite a day. <laughs> Isn't it life? <laughs> so I spent three months, in a way, consuming suffering. Not that I've, I've got a long way to go, but... You know, I had just come back from, um, recently, from Guatemala, where uh, Seva works. And um, 
we work in villages where uh, the situation is extremely hard. Um, many of the adult males of children over 15 have been murdered in the great violence. And um, so a lot of the villagers fled into the woods and some of them went off to Mexico and we work with them in Chiapas in these refugee camps for Guatemalans and some of them stayed in the internal refugees and then went back to their villages which had been burned and all the animals killed and everything. And so the old men, some of whom were left, and the women and babies are what's left in these villages. And they're starving to death and um, they watch their kids starve. And I get down there and um, I talk to these people through a translator, I don't speak Spanish, which I'm sorry about. And um, I hear these stories. This is one that's published by somebody named Regal Bhutto, but it, these are the common stories. It was my hope that my mother would die surrounded by the nature she so loved. But they put her under a tree and left her there, alive but dying. They didn't let my mother turn over, and her face was so disfigured, cut, and infected. She could barely make any movement by herself. They left her there dying for four or five days, enduring the sun, the rain, and the night. My mother was covered in worms, because in the mountains there is a fly which gets straight into any wound. And if the wound isn't tended to, in two days there are worms where the fly has been. Since all my mother's wounds were open, there were wounds, there were worms in all of them. She was still alive. My mother died in terrible agony. When my mother died, the soldiers stood over her and urinated in her mouth, even after she was dead. Then they left a permanent sentry there to guard her body so that no one could take it away. Not even what was left of it. The soldiers were there right by her body, and they could smell my mother when she started to smell very strongly. They were right there by her. They ate near her. And if the animals will excuse me, I believe not even animals act like that. They stayed for four months until they saw that not a bit of my mother was left, not even her bones, and then they went away. Looking into the eyes of a woman like that, just there in the village, in back, back villages, and hearing those stories as they told their stories in the community as they gathered. We were bringing the villages goats, for example. Uh, we got people to buy goats for Christmas, except they get delivered to people in Guatemala. And uh, then the women raise the goats because that's something they can do. And then their, kid, their babies get milk, which takes care of the brittle, reddish, broken hair from vitamin deficiency. And then the, uh, they can sell the baby kids. The first kid they have to give back to the project, which gives it to another mother. So they earn their goat, which is nice. So I looked in this woman's eyes and um, 
we looked for a moment, and even though we didn't speak the language, and she had just translated a story like that, which was ripping my heart apart, I looked in her eyes, and they weren't filled with self-pity. And they weren't even filled with anger. They were just present. She had, everything had been scraped clean, and she was just there. She had probably watched her husband and her sons die. Then she describes her mother's death. And here she is. And they reminded me of those little flowers when you go up in the rocks, when you're rock climbing, and the little flowers that cling to the nooks and crannies in the, in the rock. You don't know why they exist. I realized as I looked in her eyes that we were just two beings. Like, are you here? I'm here. Wow. And she felt my presence, and I felt hers. Just an acknowledgement of our existence to one another. Sure, I will do what I can, and she will have done to what can be done, and that's all wonderful. But behind that, it was just like two, two beings of the species meeting. In a way, in wonder and awe and horror and every, emo- every emotion, And you just keep opening yourself to looking at the universe as it is. Not just as you dreamed it might be with denying all the things that don't fit, but just looking at it as it is. As it is in Namibia and as it is in Nepal and as it is in inner city and as it is out on the streets and as it is and as it is in... Milken's junk bond world, and as it is, and etc. Just looking at it as it is, from a place inside yourself which is one of appreciation, not judgment. I mean, who are you to judge? Who am I to judge? When Phyllis was dying, my stepmother, I would have done anything to take her pain away, because I loved her. But I couldn't do it. And what I saw was that the pain beat at her ego. And finally, her ego surrendered. And the minute her ego surrendered, it was like the shell of an egg broke. And who appeared before me was like, it was like uh, the mother, the goddess. It was like me. It was like us. It was just presence. And she and I recognized one another in that space. And I thought all that suffering, was that grace or was it hell? She was being herself in those last few days in a way she had not been able to get to in herself in all the years up to then. And she was simultaneously in ecstasy and horror, being both in and out of incarnation.
So I've gotten so that I don't know who's supposed to die and who's supposed to live and who's supposed to suffer and who's not supposed to suffer. I mean, I'm not going to judge God. And even if I'm God, when I am, then I'll understand that until then, so what am I making such a big deal about? I'm just living in my own mind. Of course, I'm also living in my own heart. And my heart has its own intuitive wisdom about it. And there's a thing about the human heart. My, the expression, my heart went out to her, or to him. There's a quality of the heart that embraces, that goes out, that goes into boundarylessness, which is what love is. A heart goes out. And there's an interesting dialogue that goes on in us between our mind, which is keeping our ego and our separateness alive, and our heart, which is connected to the one. The hearts keep saying, here, take it all, take my car, take my house, take my life, take it all. Lilies of the field and stuff like that. And the mind's saying, now wait a minute. Yeah, think about tomorrow. Don't give it all away today. And my heart, when I see a young woman sitting in a doorway in Harlem, uh, probably caught on cocaine or heroin, sitting forlornly with broken shoes and no coat, and it's cold. I mean, who is that? Is that them? Is it us? Is it me? I kid about the statement, we are all one, say the New Agers. And they add, but it's my television set. I mean, if you look at another human being and you look through the veil, it's only us. So if that veil is a homeless person and you're a home person, those are veils. If you only see other people's veils, You only see Russians or Jews or Arabs or fundamentalists or whatever. We've got to meet behind those things. For you to meet behind them, you've got to know yourself behind your own veils. If you're busy with any role, you're only going to see other roles. Roles see roles. I used to be a therapist and I used to need patients. You know, how can a therapist be a therapist if there's no patients? I'm a therapist, you say to that, on a desert island to the tree. <laughs> Lots of luck, baby. <laughs> I'm a tree, I don't need therapy. <laughs> I mean, I used to get resentful when my patients would get better. <clears throat> they didn't need me anymore. <laughs> 
The fun is in meeting other human beings behind the roles. And then what happens? See, people are afraid of that because they're afraid they're going to be had or taken or used or exploited. As if when you do that, you lose control of what you want. Getting what you want. Two things are wrong with that. One is that you change what you want in the course of it. And the second is that the more you have opened to what is, the more you are completely, actually almost in control. Because only a being who is free has free will. People trapped in habits of thought have trapped will. It's called karma. Only God has free will. All the rest of you are being had, just like me. If you think you're somebody, it's just another trip. You aren't anybody any more than I am. Here we is. You can be anybody you'd like to be. You are already. You did it. This is it. You don't like it? That's part of it. We won. We won. Can you imagine that? We each became just who we wanted to be. This? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what do you know? If I really thought that, it would all be different. Well, try it. <laughs> you mean? Yeah. Very far out. especially when people are like in prison or dying of cancer or something like that. Hard to see that, I, boy, this is quite a trip I've got going. Whew. So I finished with New York. I ate as much suffering as I could into the emptiness of compassion. That's what it turns out. It turns out there's a line in Buddhism that just absolutely blows my mind if I have one. It... <laughs> For years after I was known as, you know, because of my drug uh, connections, um, <laughs> all I had to do at lectures was appear sane, as far out. <sighs> uh, it's a simple request, isn't it? For me, anyway. So I finished um, that, and I... There's an, there's an endless amount of suffering in the world, if you hadn't noticed. I mean, it's not like you're going to end the suffering. So you can't be very uh, goal-oriented. <laughs> you end up working to relieve suffering just because what else are you going to do? Because to the extent that you will let yourself into that plane where there's only one of us, it's you that's suffering. And it hurts. Who wants to suffer? So you want to do what you can about the suffering. 
just because that's who we are, just like you take your hand out of a flame. It's part of it is you. And the only way you can be non-compassionate in the presence of suffering, compassion, meaning with the suffering, the only way you can be separate from compassion is if you deny that plane of reality or relative reality where we're, only, we're all one. Then it's his suffering or her suffering. Poor thing. Pity is a way of keeping distance between two beings. I pity you. But the Buddha's statement is, out of emptiness arises compassion. It's a far out statement. That's the same thing as the, two, the second potato, and it's the same thing as my Burmese tell, teacher telling me not to go home. It's that the final gate or the final barrier on the gate to the seventh inner temple or whatever kind of mythic dance you and Joseph Campbell want to cook up <laughs> out of the infinite variety of possibilities. Maybe not the last, but close to it is what is called the golden chain in India, which is the chain of righteousness. that you end up wanting to do good or be good. You end up with just little enough faith in the, in the way of things so that you figure you've got to put your efforts on the side of good. Not you yet. We'll, we'll get you. <laughs> we'll suck you into the good and evil world. We'll prove to you it's real. You wait and see. Laugh now, if you will. We'll get you. We're a strong conspiracy of consciousness. You don't have a chance of remembering who you are in the face of us. So you might as well surrender and just goo your way through it, and you'll come up for air later if you've got good karma. And if not, you will anyway, sooner or later, so don't rush. <laughs> chain of righteousness the golden chain they say it's made of gold but it's still a chain in the guna system in Hinduism the three gunas rajasic or fire and tamasic or stone or sedentary, and sattvic or pure. If you're sattvic, it's the golden chain. It's only when you go beyond the gunas, beyond the fire, beyond the inertia, and beyond the seeking after purity. As the third patriarch, our little buddy here, with this little booklet says, even to be attached to the idea of enlightenment is to go astray. Let me read you something. Don't you like my filing system? <laughs> if 
I respected you enough, I would have prepared better. <laughs> have to tell it to you. A young man goes to a uh, Zen temple. Was to see the Roshi, and he says, "The Roshi, I want to get enlightened. I want to enroll to get enlightened. How long will it take?" And the Roshi looked at him and said, "Ten years." They had another cup of tea. The young man said, "Well, if I work twice as hard as all your other students, just how long will it take?" Silence. And the Roshi said, "Twenty years." <laughs> and if I give up all my sleep and work day and night, and work as hard as you've ever worked, how long will it take? Thirty years. Why is it? That every time I say I'll work harder, you keep adding on more years. When one eye is looking towards the goal, there is only one eye left to follow the way. See the issue of trying, trying to be good. Trying to get through the door, trying to get enlightened. It's interesting that the trying comes out of fear and lack of faith, and that's part of the mind. The mind, the ego, is constantly saying, "I'm going to become enlightened." The horror is, as Trungpa Rinpoche said, "Enlightenment is the ego's ultimate disappointment." <laughs> Isn't that a jewel? Enlightenment is the ego's ultimate disappointment. She who tries never makes it. That's what it boils down to. So I,、um, I've been very busy being good. I am so good. People come up and say, "Are you good?" They say, "Thank you for being so good." And I published a book, "How Can I Help," which is a good book. <laughs> and I'm for all the right causes and for good reasons. My guru once said to somebody, I could, he said about himself, "I could have been a great saint if I wasn't so compassionate." <laughs> That resonates on so many levels. It's so weird. Well, the art is to embrace the suffering without judgment, with appreciation in the perfection of the laws of the universe, which include your own heart breaking continuously. Because of the suffering of us or me, everywhere you look, so that this moment, as I'm with you and I'm happy and light, it includes the woman I met in Guatemala who tells me about her mother. It doesn't exclude her. 
How many times do we feel we have to look away from suffering in order to be happy? Okay, I've dealt with my two pounds of suffering. Now I can go home and be happy. I gave at the office. You know, the first times I started to be find myself in a situation where there was incredible suffering and feeling my, the pain of my heart breaking over this and doing what I could do about it, and at the same moment feeling an inner joy. I thought I'd lost it because I was so unused to joy being there in the same breath, in the same presence as the pain in the heart. I always wondered about a Buddhist statue that has a little smile on the end, and it's called the smile of infinite, the smile of unbearable compassion is the name of the statue. The smile of unbearable compassion. Because when you look at things that you can't bear, and you they become unbearable, and then whatever couldn't bear them dies because there they still are and there you are and what is born at that moment is something that is so there's no words it's not strong and it's not soft it's so present and you are just you are what they call the saints in India the living dead I'm the living dead I can look at anything in the universe and go yeah Hmm. All of them. And feel that I, what I'm looking at is also my humanity and the pain of my humanity in through its empathy, through its pity, through its all of the feelings of humanity and wanting to do something and doing what I can and that's what Seva is for me, for example. And at the same moment, resting in the perfection of the universe in the beauty of the law unfolding, which includes the suffering. And live with that paradox. Live with that paradox that on two planes of reality, two different truths seem to be existing. One is that the suffering stinks and the other is that it's grace. And to deny either one for the other is to miss the point. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.